If you've been here for any length of time at Grace Bible Church, you you know this, but I it's a it's a topic that I just love to return to and think about because it's so important in the Bible, and that is the the symbol in the Bible, the living representation of God's love for Israel. The symbol of his faithfulness to Israel, the symbol of his faithfulness to his people for millennia has been the city of Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem once, and it was a monumentally emotional experience, having read that this is really the center of our Bible. And it is safe to say that Jerusalem is the capital city of the Bible. It's the capital city of God's redemptive program, the capital city of all prophecy, as the redemptive blueprint of history unfolds in Scripture, Jerusalem becomes the image, becomes the, the symbol of Israel's imperial hopes that God would establish His kingdom on earth someday. It's very likely that Israel is located either at or near the site of the ancient Canaanite city of Salem. This was the city of the ancient priestly king Melchizedek. He was a worshiper of God who lived in the time of Abraham. This area was called Jebus before King David conquered it as recorded in 2 Samuel 5 and David took it away from the Jebusites. This land had already been deeded to Israel by God and so the Jebusites were squatters. They were trespassers. David established Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel, the center of Israelites' uh, monarchy. But Jerusalem also became the center of Israelite worship. One of David's earliest acts as king was to bring the Ark of the Covenant to reside in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem wasn't just the center of the Israelite monarchy. It was the center of Israel's worship. It was the center of where you went to meet with God. This was firmly and permanently established when David's son Solomon built the temple. The temple is, in essence, a royal palace for God, and it's the place of sacrifice where God could be approached on the basis of of shed blood. And really it was during the reign of Solomon that Jerusalem reached its highest point in Old Testament times. Jerusalem was so much a part of the people of Israel that it came to be symbolic of the nation itself. The entire nation was sometimes called Jerusalem or the mountain of the Lord for all of Israel. Now interestingly, the mountains upon which Jerusalem currently sits are are prophesied a couple of times in the Old Testament to become the highest of all the mountains. Speaking of the geographical changes, the topographical changes that are going to take place on the earth just before the millennial reign of Christ. There will be a time in the future that Jerusalem is literally the highest point on our planet. The worst thing God could do in the minds of Israelites was to withdraw his presence from Jerusalem. As a result of Israel's continued generational apostasy, this is ultimately what happened. And finally, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians, under God's sovereign hand, destroyed Jerusalem and took the surviving inhabitants captive. But the hope that Israel had in forgiveness and in restoration always centered around one idea, and that was someday we'll go back. Someday we'll be back in Jerusalem. When Israel began returning from exile, they began rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the walls. These were the top priorities. Then to a Jew, and rightly so, there is no Israel without Jerusalem. There's no kingdom without a capital. 
It was in Jerusalem that Israel awaited the Davidic king, the Messiah, to come and to establish them as a nation forever. And consequently, when Messiah did come, when the glory of God returned to Jerusalem in the person of Jesus Christ, the beginnings of that coming kingdom were seen. Jesus even said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning the king is right here. Messiah didn't minister in Rome. He didn't minister in Athens. He didn't minister in Babylon. He didn't minister in Damascus. He ministered in and around Jerusalem. He even offered himself to Israel as their king, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Jerusalem, on two occasions, Jesus cleansed the temple of the fraudulently religious Defending his father's house, the divine palace of God. But you know the story, Jerusalem would ultimately reject Messiah. Jesus wept over Jerusalem's sin. He wept over her rejection and consequently predicted that God would once again destroy the city, which the Roman legions of Titus did in 70 A.D. Jerusalem became then the site of the death and resurrection of Messiah. And because of the apostasy of the leadership of Israel, Jesus told the 12 apostles that he was replacing that leadership with who? With them. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jerusalem would be destroyed as Jesus predicted, but her significance doesn't end there. Present-day Jerusalem isn't the seat of God's kingdom, except for those who have received Christ as Savior. The, the Drew, Jews of Jerusalem and the Israel of today still reject Jesus as Messiah. Their eyes are still blinded to the spiritual truth of the salvation offered through Christ. And of course, there's a, a huge Muslim presence there now, so it certainly isn't the seat of God's kingdom at this moment. And so in the New Testament, because of the fact that Jerusalem as it is now, as it was then, really was failing, the focus becomes future Jerusalem. And this is partly fulfilled in the Millennial Kingdom, but the New Testament focus is generally beyond that. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In the Bible, when it talks about a city, it means a city, a, a real place. In this lasting city, an eternal city, which Paul calls in Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem above, it's a city awaiting inhabitants. As a matter of fact, your salvation is so secure, so certain, that Hebrews 12.22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering." That you are, spiritually speaking, in New Jerusalem, the final Jerusalem as it will be in glory. The ultimate expression of the capital city of the Bible, of course, is this New Jerusalem. This is a city that exists now in heaven with God waiting for the day of its arrival on new earth. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in New Jerusalem, all the imperial hopes of Israel and all the eternal hopes of the church will all be realized at once. The coming of New Jerusalem is the full realization of God reigning on earth with His people. And while in history, because of her unfaithfulness, God has twice allowed the complete destruction of Jerusalem. It's going to happen one more time, by the way, during, at the end of the Great Tribulation. Revelation 16 tells us this. That only happens at His pleasure. Only at His pleasure. No one else gets to threaten His people. No one else gets to threaten His capital if He doesn't say so. And so Jerusalem is, is the capital city of the Bible. It is the symbol of God's faithfulness to Israel. I wanted to give you that little bit of a background. Turn with me to 2 Kings 19. And we'll actually look briefly at the end of chapter 18 first. As we continue looking at the pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ long before His birth, we've been working our way through the Old Testament. Again, almost all of the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament are in direct relation to his care of Israel and, yes, sometimes his discipline of Israel. And we should remember that one of Israel's purposes is to be the conduit through which a king like David, descended from David, would be born. That is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the angel of the Lord works very much to set up his own coming earthly ministry, working, as we've called this series, backstage before Bethlehem. Now, we should remember this as well. God's overall plan ultimately will include the severe punishment of the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been decimated and carried off by the Assyrians just 21 years before our story tonight. And in 586, just 115 years future from our story, Jerusalem will be destroyed by Babylon. Many Jews carried off into exile. But these who are carried off into exile, will form what many, many times in the Old Testament is called the remnant. The remnant through whom God will rebuild the nation after her discipline. But the remnant can't survive if the city and her inhabitants are completely destroyed by another superpower. And so the situation that we kind of swoop down onto for Jerusalem right now is is ominous and it is dangerous. I'd like to show you that the angel of the Lord is coming to Jerusalem in this particular case with a singular purpose, and that is to preserve Israel's remnant, to preserve this remnant through whom ultimately he would come. God is jealous for Israel. He's always jealous for his people, just as he's jealous for you, his Gentile church, all who have been given the free gift of salvation in Christ. And so we're going to kind of descend down into this situation. The year is 701 B.C., King Sennacherib of Assyria was putting down rebellions against his empire that were in the area of Palestine, Israel. He had conquered or seized 46 cities in the region already. He had already deported 200,000 Jews to this point. He had just conquered Lachish. Lachish was the last stronghold between him and Jerusalem, just 29 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And there was nothing else between Lachish and Jerusalem. In fact, archaeologists have found a mass grave at Lachish where Assyrians buried 1,500 Jews that they just slaughtered. Now, while Sennacherib was at Lachish conquering and killing King Hezekiah of Judah, he didn't trust in the Lord yet. 
And so he did what he thought was prudent, and that was to try to make amends with Sennacherib. And so he sent from Jerusalem political envoys to apologize for his rebellion. And he sent the treasures of Jerusalem, all the money he could muster up in tribute. Just in case Hezekiah had been preparing for attack by digging the now famous Hezekiah's tunnel to bring water in from the outside and to minimize the water that any invading army could get. But even though Hezekiah sent all the treasures of Jerusalem, everything he had, Sennacherib said, thank you very much, we're coming anyway. And Sennacherib would be satisfied with nothing less than unconditional surrender and the death of Hezekiah. So Hezekiah is now completely cut off, totally isolated. He doesn't have really a nation anymore. He has a city. He has Jerusalem. Sennacherib sends then his top three officials to challenge Hezekiah, to mock him at the capital city of Jerusalem. Sennacherib had sent 185,000 soldiers to get ready to conquer Jerusalem if Hezekiah wouldn't surrender. And so this man called the Rabshakeh, the field commander of Sennacherib, he acted as a spokesman and he attempted to strike fear into the hearts of all in Jerusalem, painting this terrible picture of suffering that would come when the Assyrian hordes broke through and over the wall of Jerusalem where everyone in the region was now hiding. Everybody was inside. But he also attempted to entice the inhabitants of Jerusalem to say, hey, it doesn't have to end badly. Look with me at Second Kings 18, verse 28. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Now, hold on right there. The Rabshakeh is being a little bit sneaky. He's speaking Hebrew to the Hebrews. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm relating to you. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah for thus says the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. By the way, that is a promise made for Israel when Messiah comes. And he says, you can have that now. Let's be done with this whole siege thing. Let's be done with having not enough food and worrying about death. Verse 32. Oh, here's the catch. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. But in one of the great moments in the history of Israel, Israel didn't listen. They didn't listen to this nonsense. Look at verse 36. But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. 
And that brings us to chapter 19, and I'd like to just walk through this text tonight, and we'll kind of catch some lessons as we go. I just want to give you six key words to organize our narrative tonight. And the whole point here is that the angel of the Lord is going to come to preserve the remnant of Israel, but we have to go through this story. So just six key words. The first key word is panic. Panic. This is how it starts. Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Hezekiah went humbly to the temple in all likelihood to confess sin, to renew his dependence upon the Lord. Tearing your clothes was a sign of grief. It was a sign of submission. It was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of just of everything that you know and that you hold to be secure and dear is just coming to an end. But we should note here that Hezekiah didn't call another war council. He didn't try to think up a new strategy. He didn't discuss terms of surrender. He went to the Lord. And so in his grief and in his panic, he sent his chief servant, his assistant, and the top priests in Jerusalem, all covered with the sackcloth of mourning. He sent them to Isaiah, to the prophet Isaiah. And Hezekiah's message to Isaiah was that Jerusalem is out of strength. That we have nothing left. The Rabshakeh of Assyria has been sent by Sennacherib to mock God. And they asked Isaiah, verse 4, if he would pray for the remnant that is left. And so in desperation, he sends his crew to the prophet to say, please pray. They've reached the end of human strength, the end of human power. They're completely out of options exactly, by the way, where the Lord wanted them to be. Now, Hezekiah's request to Isaiah, it's touching on two counts. First of all, it's touching because the top, the first, the highest concern now that Hezekiah has is for the blemished honor of the Lord. That the Rabshakeh has been sent to mock the living God. Now Hezekiah is beginning to get his priorities straight. He's beginning to see that his job is not so much to defend himself, even to defend his people, but to defend the honor of God. And the second reason this is touching is that they plead with Isaiah Isaiah to pray for the remnant that's left all around Jerusalem. Multitudes and dozens of cities have already fallen to Assyria. They've been enslaved as if Hezekiah himself had sold them. 200,000 people are gone. Hezekiah previously had trusted in himself and now thousands of people were paying the price. But this is touching because he, he comes humbly to the prophet of God to say, Please ask the Lord to stop the carnage, stop the bleeding. He cares. He cares for his people. And Isaiah gives words of hope, words of life, words that if they're true would be absolutely miraculous. Look at chapter 19, verse 6. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. These are fantastic words. When you hear, thus says the Lord, how encouraging is that? And the first words out of the mouth of the Lord, now you've heard, thus says the Lord. It happens thousands of times in the Bible. Sometimes, thus says the Lord is followed by, you shall be judged or you're about to die. 
But God knows he, they need help. And so it says, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Immediately. When God speaks, relief is coming. When God speaks, things are happening. When God speaks, victory is around the corner. Did you notice something, by the way? They asked Isaiah to pray for them, but he didn't pray. Why? He already had the answer. He already had the answer. Isaiah already knew that if Hezekiah humbled himself, then God was going to act. In Hezekiah chapter 19, verse 1, this is so key. He went to the house of the Lord. He humbled himself. And so Isaiah was ready with the Lord's answer. He already had the oracle of the Lord prepared. He spoke immediately. He spoke with confidence in what the Lord had already said he would do. Now, just from a biblical standpoint, why could Isaiah be so confident that God was going to bless the efforts of Hezekiah, that God was going to protect him? Because he's already said it. Deuteronomy 28.1 and then Deuteronomy 28.7. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. God's already promised this. Humble yourself before me, serve me, and I'll protect you. And so God tells them not to be afraid of the field commander's words. They're just words. The field commander's words only did one thing. They made a small breeze in the vicinity of his head. That's it. Nothing else. There's no power in these words whatsoever. Second key word we'll call powerlessness. Powerlessness. Chapter 19, verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, behold, he is set out to fight against you. Now let's stop right there for a minute. Here's the situation. The Rabshakeh, The field commander who had taunted Hezekiah's officials and soldiers on the wall of Jerusalem, he left. When Isaiah ordered his men to give no answer to him, he left. There was no answer coming. He left the soldiers, the 185,000, surrounding the city, continuing the siege. And he went back to report to Sennacherib. Sennacherib had left uh, Lachish by this time. And now Sennacherib has problems. His attentions are now split. He was going to have his hands full with a 20-year-old upstart king, Terhaka of Cush, that's Ethiopia. And so he sent messengers back to Hezekiah to try to hurry up this process and scare Hezekiah into submission. So how does he try to scare him? In the verse 9, so he sent messengers again to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hina, or the king of Iva? What's happening here? Sennacherib didn't have time for the theatrics that the field commander, the Rabshakeh, had brought earlier. Now he sends this letter with intimidation and threats. Basically, he's listing all the nations, all the cities that he's conquered, and he says, where are their gods right now? Sennacherib, is undefeated in battle, 
He's taken not just cities, but whole peoples. And where does this leave King Hezekiah and the little city of Jerusalem? It leaves them powerless. Now, if you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, you know that this is often right where God leads you, that you trust in Him and Him alone. And what we do finally when we're defeated, when we're powerless, when we're hopeless, what do we do? Oh, I guess I should what? Pray. It's the third key word, prayer. Verse 14. Third key word is prayer. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the Lord, the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. The letter would have been in a scroll and he opened it up. And this is sort of to say, God, have you read this? Hezekiah responds much better than he did with the first threats by Sennacherib. The first time Hezekiah tore his clothes and asked Isaiah to pray. Now he doesn't panic. He goes to the temple of the Lord to do his own praying. His faith is finally where God would have him in total humble dependence upon the Lord. Now that he's powerless, he is in prayer himself. But now Hezekiah's priorities are even better. He's not just concerned with himself. Now he's concerning himself with the reputation of God and the prayer that we're going to look at here. I'm going to slow down just a little bit because this prayer is a God-saturated prayer. In fact, Hezekiah prays about four key elements of God's reputation. Hezekiah is now getting all the attention off of himself and all the attention onto the Lord as it ought to be. Four key elements of God's reputation. First, Hezekiah prays concerning the nature of God. The nature of God. In verse 15, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. The nature of God, and and he expounds on this nature of God, that God is all-powerful. He's the Lord of all the angels at the beginning of this prayer and the maker of heaven and earth at the end of just that verse even, meaning he controls the armies of heaven. He made all things. Not only is he all-powerful, he's an all-powerful king. He's the God of Israel. God will always be the God of Israel. But he also says, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Scripture scripture continually makes this distinction about God in general and Christ in particular, that he's king of Israel and king of the world. That's always a distinction. But not only is he all-powerful, not only is he an all-powerful king, he is an all-powerful king who loves his people. This little phrase here that he is enthroned above the cherubim, oh, that is just weighted with meaning about God's love for his people. Let me explain. Cherubim are the angelic beings that are depicted on either end of the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. In the actual heavenly throne room, the actual throne room of God, the real cherubim form, as it were, the pedestal of the throne of God as recorded in Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. In other words, the throne of God, somehow that we can't really fully 
understand, sort of floating around in the heavenly throne room is held up or it's on the pedestal of the real cherubim. The real angels in the rest of that chapter gives just a tremendous description. But why is this important? Psalm 99 says that the Lord is enthroned upon the cherubim. We just saw that. And we worship at his footstool or at his pedestal. What do the cherubim do? They have some sort of connection to connecting God with man. God loves his people and the cherubim are part of how he provides that access. That's why we see them on the mercy seat of the the Ark of the Covenant. They're depicted there in gold as guarding this access to God. How was access to God granted in Israel? Through sacrifice and blood was sprinkled where? On the mercy seat of the ark, showing that sacrifice had been made to atone for the sin of the worshiper. 1 Peter 1 verse 2 says that the blood was sprinkled now on your behalf is the blood of Christ. And so when Hezekiah says, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, He's referencing the fact that there is a connection that he has given with us and God. Hezekiah prays concerning the nature of God as an all-powerful king who loves his people. Second, Hezekiah prays concerning the honor of God. The honor of God, verse 16. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Now, Hezekiah isn't being disrespectful when he asks God to open his ears and his eyes. Metaphorically, that's a way of asking God to listen to him. Sennacherib doesn't say, by the way, look at, or or Hezekiah rather, doesn't say, God, I'm worried that Sennacherib is mocking me and endangering me and threatening me. No, it's look how he's mocking you. I love that. And this is one of the the great things about being a shepherd is that we also get to guard our own hearts because I need not be concerned if I am mocked. My job is to defend God when he is mocked. And so Hezekiah is now concerned for the honor of God. Third, Hezekiah prays concerning the uniqueness of God. The uniqueness of God. Sennacherib boasted that when he had defeated all the gods of the other cities that he did this with ease but Hezekiah draws a clear distinction verse 17 truly O Lord the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire for they were not gods but the work of men's hands wood and stone therefore they were destroyed okay let's put this in perspective When Sennacherib says, I have defeated the gods of these other nations, what does that really mean? What it means is that after he killed everybody, he walked into the temple of a false god, found the idol, and threw it in a bonfire. He defeated the god that was supposedly protecting the city. By the way, a little side note, the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. This isn't just a command not to make false gods. More, it's a command to not make an image of Yahweh, to not make an image of the true and living God. Why? Because an image can be destroyed and the implication is then the God can be destroyed. 
So there, there is no way that you can walk into a temple and destroy the image of the true and living God. So just don't make one. If you make an image of God, it makes God appear defeatable. But here's the distinction that Hezekiah is drawing. God is unique. He's not like the gods of the world. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet himself makes this distinction. Isaiah 40 verses 18 through 20 describes a craftsman selecting materials and then making a god. And as soon as the paint is dry, then he bows down and worships it. Isaiah 42.17 describes the process of making a god and that a god becomes real simply because someone says to the idol, okay, now you're my god. And that makes it real. My favorite is Isaiah 44. Describes a craftsman who goes out to the forest and he cuts down a tree and he chops that tree up into a bunch of pieces and he takes half of the tree And he makes a god to be worshipped. And he takes the other half and makes a fire and makes dinner with it. So there's a distinction. Hezekiah is telling God the king of Assyria has boasted of how he has defeated the gods of these other lands. Let him never be able to make that boast here. Well, finally, Hezekiah prays concerning the fame of God. The fame of God. To finish his prayer, now Hezekiah makes a request, but it's a God-centered request, a God-centered motive. Verse 19, So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. That you, Yahweh, are God alone. The Lord declares in Isaiah 45, verse 6, why he does everything he does, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Can I give you the difference between the glory of God and the fame of God? There is a slight difference. The glory of God is all that God possesses that makes him glorious. The fame of God is everyone knowing that. That's the difference. What a prayer. What a spiritual turnaround for the previously fearful Hezekiah. What a prayer. It's a fourth key word. This key word we'll call providence. Providence. Chapter 20 or verse 20 of chapter 19. Then Isaiah the son of Amoz sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you. The daughter of Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet sends word to King Hezekiah and tells him what's going to happen. God is speaking to Assyria in general and to Sennacherib in particular. Now the tables are turned. This is quite a contrast to Sennacherib mocking and threatening Jerusalem. Now this is a complete turnaround. Jerusalem says in verse 21, she despises you. This is a word that means she shows contempt. She belittles you. Can I put it in terms we understand? It's Jerusalem going like that. She scorns you. It means to speak mockingly of what somebody said. It's, It's to make fun of them, to say, Something like, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? It's to mock. Oh, bring back the Rabshakeh. He was so cute. Let's look at him again. 
the virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you. Now, this is a, this is a bit of a, of, a, of a difficult metaphor. It's difficult because it's, it's kind of hard for us to kind of stomach. But this is a metaphor that Jerusalem is like a helpless virgin about to be overwhelmed by a rapist. And instead, the rapist finds himself suddenly with a mortal wound, bleeding to death from someone defending the girl, and he turns around to see who got him, and now she wags her head behind you. Again, yeah. As the criminal is running away, the girl is saying, that's right, run. Now, God isn't defending Jerusalem just for her sake, but for his own sake. Verse 22 Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. God clears up the issue. The real issue here is not that Sennacherib is threatening Jerusalem. That's just the symptom. The real issue is that Sennacherib has mocked. It means to taunt. He is reviled. It means to blaspheme. Who? The Holy One of Israel. Sennacherib has elevated himself, raising his voice, lifting his eyes. And how has he done this? He's done this by boasting that in his own strength he could conquer the greatest of all nations. Verse 23, By your messengers you have mocked the Lord and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest and in fact Sennacherib has claimed God-like omnipotence he's claimed to be powerful in a supernatural sense verse 24 this is again what Sennacherib has said I dug wells and drank foreign waters and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt that's Sennacherib saying I can do that Red Sea thing I heard about But Sennacherib has never been in control, not for one second. God has been sovereignly operating in his providence all the time. Listen, the sovereignty of God is not just a a theological concept that we argue in dusty classrooms. It's not just God knowing things or possessing certain attributes. God's sovereignty is active. It's working. His sovereignty is absolutely proactive. It's hands-on. It's calculating. It's maneuvering. It is control. Verse 25 Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old, which I now bring, what I now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Look at all these phrases that indicate total control. Verse 25, I determined it. It's a word that means I manufactured it. I made it. Verse 25 again, I planned it from days of old. I formed it. I fashioned it long before anything existed. I bring to pass. It means to lead every event by the nose. It's all God. God is saying, I alone ordained every city you would conquer. Verse 25, I alone ordained the super strength with which you would conquer. Verse 26, I alone know every move you make because I determined it. Verse 27. But in verse 27, 
God also knows Sennacherib has raged against God. This is a word that means to be agitated to the point of trembling. This is this anger. This isn't trembling in fear. This is trembling in rebellious rage and and self-righteous resentment. By the way, these verses here answer the age-old question, if God is sovereign and all-powerful and causes all things, doesn't that make him a bad God for causing bad things? No, not at all. Verses 25 through 27, God is in control. Verse 28, Sennacherib is completely accountable for his murderous, prideful, immoral actions. Let me put it this way. Sennacherib is the horse and God is the rider. All the energy and violence attributed to the horse and the direction and the guiding touch belongs then to the rider. The horse does the damage and he's accountable. Or, to put it in simpler terms, Proverbs 21 One says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Assyria is arrogant, they're brutish, they're imperialistic with the ambition to rule the world, which belongs rightly only to God. Little detail here, Assyria was incredibly cruel. They were so cruel and so arrogant that it was their habit to lead thousands of captives back to Assyria by piercing their noses, putting a ring in their noses, and then leaving them chained in long lines of hundreds of people on these chains, like so many cattle being led away. But look what God will do to Sennacherib. Verse 28, Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook into your nose and my bit in your mouth. And I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Listen, the providence of God, this is the bedrock of our faith. This is the bedrock of what it means to walk with the Lord. That God is always completely in control. That nothing ever escapes his notice. Not one thing. We have a heavenly father, if I could put it in musical terms, who's not only directing the orchestra, he wrote the music, he made the musicians and manufactured the instruments. It's all from him. Everything flows out of his mind. Everything flows out of his plan. Everything flows out of his direction. Everything flows out of his will. Providence. It's a a wonderful concept. And Hezekiah now is enjoying the fruit of that. There's a fifth key word we'll call promises. Promises. Now God is going to speak to Hezekiah once again and he gives him three promises. The first promise is, I will provide for you. I will provide for you. Verse 29. And this shall be the sign for you this year. Eat what grows of itself. And then the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The land has been devastated by the Assyrians. Anyone in the vicinity of Jerusalem is now in the city behind the protection of the walls. The farms have been decimated. They've been abandoned. There's no crops growing by means of aggressively planting as they normally would. The crops in the fields are neglected, but God promised that God would grow crops for for them and they would eat from the goodness of his hand for two years. I will provide for you. He makes them a second promise. I will preserve you. I will preserve you. Verse 30, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. This is a great word picture. This is a picture of, of, of a tree that's just almost been uprooted and there's just, it's just almost on the verge of, of dying and falling over. 
that he says, no, the roots will go down and the fruit will be born. Life would return to normal. In a very short time, the memory of the Assyrians would just be a bad dream. This isn't just speaking, though, of immediate preservation, but it is a, it's a promise of perpetual preservation that God always, always, always preserves a remnant of Israel. Verse 31, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Yes, exile is coming in 115 years. But praise the Lord that there is a remnant to be exiled. They won't be destroyed at this moment. I will provide for you. I will preserve you. And this third promise, I will protect you. I will protect you. Verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Do you catch this? Not a single arrow gets shot over the wall. Not one. These three verses sound a lot to me like a daddy assuring a scared child of his protection, saying, I'm bigger and stronger than all the bad men. And it's a good thing because we should remember that there were outside the walls of Jerusalem 185,000 very bad men. And oh, how God cherishes and loves his people if they will just call on his name and trust in him. And now... In heaven, the angel of the Lord girds himself for action. The very Son of God, the King of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, the very one who in 700 years will physically stand in Jerusalem and weep over his people, the one who is fiercely loyal to his people, fiercely protective of his people, he readies himself as a warrior going into battle. And with the might that only belongs to God, the angel of the Lord unleashes his fury on Assyria. So our sixth key word, we'll call it preview. Preview. Verse 35. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. By the way, did you catch this? 185,000 soldiers surrounding them. And what did the people in Jerusalem do? They had a good night's sleep. They woke up and everybody was dead. Then Sennacherib, verse 36, king of Assyria departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, Adramelech and Sharezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. The true king of Israel came to defend his beloved people. And Isaiah's prophecy of Sennacherib's death came true, hacked to death by his own power-hungry sons. Now, why do we call this keyword preview? Two reasons. First of all, the angel of the Lord has destroyed this portion of the Assyrian army, 185,000 strong, but God isn't finished with the Assyrian empire. In Isaiah 10, you don't have to turn there. Time doesn't permit us to do that. But the first part of Isaiah 10, it, it gives us a decree from God that he's going to judge Israel. And he's going to do it with what he calls the rod of my anger. The rod of the anger of God, meaning he's going to discipline apostate Israel 
by means of the Assyrian Empire. And simultaneously, he decrees judgment against the Assyrian Empire. He condemns the pride of Assyria in thinking itself to be indestructible. And so God has decreed not only that he would raise up Assyria to punish Israel, but then he would go, how dare you punish Israel? And he will punish them. That's the sovereignty of God at work. He does as he pleases. Isaiah 10 verse 12 says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, the work of discipline, he will punish the speech of the arrogant king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And what's the crime of the numerous kings of Assyria? Isaiah 10 13 says that he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it. God condemns Assyria and he reminds the reader that he is sovereign, he's in control. He says in Isaiah 10, 15, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it as if a rod should wield him who lifts it or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? In other words, Assyria is the tool in my hand. How dare you say anything? But then Isaiah gives an interesting prediction of something that God's going to do. Isaiah 10, 16, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. What is this? Well, it very well could be that the means by which the angel of the Lord slays the 185,000 is some sort of instantly killing pestilence. Remember, 2 Kings nineteen thirty five says that when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. In other words, they didn't hear anything. There was no battle. There was no screaming. They just got up and, wow, they're all dead. They just all dropped dead. That could be what the wasting sickness is. But that wasn't the end of the Assyrian Empire. The end of the Assyrian Empire was still 96 years away. Whatever the angel of the Lord did that fateful night to defend Israel, that was just the beginning of the wasting away of the Assyrian Empire, a slow devastation. 74 years after the angel of the Lord killed the 185,000, by about 627 BC, the empire was so large now that the sons of King Ashurbanipal, who had just died, they all fought for control of his throne. This is what happens in every empire in history, by the way. And while this power struggle is happening, all these regions that Assyria had been controlling are all whispering to each other, hey, now's the time to rebel. And they started trying to break free. And so you have the Persians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Scythians. They began making raids. And finally, Nineveh was captured and burned in 612 BC. Assyrian control ended. They hung on by their fingernails for seven more years until eventually they were crushed in the Battle of Carchemish. In 605, and you know what happened to the great and mighty capital of Assyria, the city of Nineveh? It was buried in dust. Now that's what you call a wasting disease. And so the angel of the Lord gave a preview of the coming total devastation of Assyria. God always judges the proud. God always judges the unrighteous. Always, always, always. But there's an even broader reason that this event of the angel of the Lord is a preview of something else. Second reason this is a preview. There will be a day when Antichrist gathers the nations under his control to battle against Jerusalem, which is apparently now finally rebelling against the wicked control of the beast, the Antichrist. Does this sound familiar? The great armies will surround Jerusalem because they have rebelled against an invading king. 
All this will happen, of course, after the church has been taken to heaven, after the Lord begins once again saving many of the lost who are left in the world. But as the judgments of God as recorded in Revelation 6 and following are increasingly falling on the earth, and so at the same time Antichrist is, is white hot in his hatred against Israel, many, many of whom now have seen the light of Christ and are saved. At the end of seven years, parts of Revelation 16, parts of Revelation 19, parts of Revelation 20, all of Zechariah 14 and all of Ezekiel 39 all describe the same event. The return of Jesus Christ to defend the remnant. To defend his people, to judge the nations and rescue his beloved Israel and set up his kingdom on earth. I'd like to do something a little bit unusual. If you'd allow me to do this, I'd like to harmonize those five texts that I just mentioned to you so that you can have a fuller understanding of what's going to take place at the end of the Great Tribulation after the church of Jesus Christ has already been taken into heaven and awaiting our return with him. I'm going to close with this, so you can just sit back and listen, because I want to read all five of these texts to you, but we've joined them together in the proper order. So just listen. Ezekiel 39. And you, son of man, Prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Zechariah 14. For I will gather all the nations against Israel to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Revelation 16, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that is Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that is Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in the robe dipped in blood. That is the blood of his enemies that he's about to slay. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Already raptured, given the fine linen and following him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast 
And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you, that is Israel, shall flee to the valley of my mountains. In other words, God returning Jesus Christ has split the Mount of Olives and made a valley by which all of his faithful can run. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. See also 2 Kings 19, angel of the Lord, 185,000 soldiers with their bodies rotting while they're alive. And the plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Ezekiel 39. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the people who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field for I have spoken, declares the Lord. Revelation 19. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel, this is Revelation 20, coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Zechariah 14. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses and it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of other destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Ezekiel 39. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore and the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires 
of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bow and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them. These are all the equipment of all the enemies that are now dead. Make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any out of the forest, for they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers for their Gog and all his multitude will be buried. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them and it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make their search. Now, what are they burying? By the way, they're burying the bones of 200 million soldiers, according to the book of Revelation, that have been decimated by Christ. That's a lot of digging. And so it takes time, seven months. Still Ezekiel 39 And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. There's going to be so much carnage that everybody's walking around with a little sign. Oh, there's a bone. Stick a sign in the ground. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. You shall eat fat until you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast I am preparing for you. I will set my glory among the nations and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed in my hand that I have laid upon them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. Zechariah 14, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, all holy. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Ezekiel 39, Israel shall forget their shame. And all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. And when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from the enemy's lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations, and then I assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not 
hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And Zechariah 14, verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and His name one. Assyria is just a preview. Just a preview. The angel of the Lord known to us as the Lord Jesus Christ, the one jealous for his people. He is coming back to slay the wicked who would dare rise against his beloved Jerusalem. And then he'll set up his kingdom. We'll be with him. First Thessalonians 4 says that we will be with the Lord forever. We will never leave his side. We'll come back with him. We will enjoy this kingdom once he takes care of business. What a great and mighty king we serve. Amen? When you're tempted to panic, don't. Don't. Better days are coming. The king is coming. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this preview of a coming day when Christ will reign. We thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen.